RadioInfluence.com. On today's Real Animals podcast, Captain Chris Whitman from Captains for Clean Water is joining me to discuss all the progress they've made uh, over the years uh, on uh, Captains for Clean Water and uh, how he got his start in the business. Really excited. Captain Chris Whitman's a great charter captain, a great fisherman, and a great conservationist. Hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. Joining me today here on the Real Animals Podcast, uh, a captain I've been friends with a long time. Uh, We've caught a lot of tarpon side-by-side in Boca Grand Pass for many, many years. Uh, He, along with Captain Daniel Andrews, started Captains for Clean Water, and his charter business is still Water Charters. He is Captain Chris Whitman. Chris, how are you today, buddy? I'm good, Mike. Thanks a lot for having me, bud. You, you bet. I'm, I'm I'm excited for this. I know we've been trying to get it scheduled. You got a crazy schedule with <laughs> with all your charter stuff and all your captains for clean water stuff that you do. Let's uh, obviously we're going to get into captains for clean water because obviously I think that's a hot topic here in the state of Florida right now, and and we want people to be aware of all the great things you guys are doing as an organization and and how far you've come and where we still need to go and all those things. But you know, to give people a little bit of background because a lot of people see you now in, in, you know, Captain Chris Whitman and you and Daniel are kind of the faces for this, for Captains for Clean Water, for our clean water push and all that great stuff. But I like to dive into, you know, how does Chris Whitman become Captain Chris Whitman? Take, take me on that journey first, just so people can kind of understand, you know, and I don't know, I don't know this story. Sometimes when I ask that question, I know the story a little bit, but with you, I don't, I don't really know the, the whole story. How does, how does Chris Whitman become Captain Chris Whitman of Stillwater Charters? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, it's funny when I was, um, my family owned a construction company building, building small, uh, small company building, you know, custom homes in Southwest Florida and remodels and stuff like that. And, so throughout, you know, my, my young adult age through high school and stuff like that, I worked for my family's business, as many people did uh, during the summers. And when I graduated high school, um, worked for, for my father's company for a number of years. And I, it got to a point where um, kinda I, I had to look at, you know, is this something that, that I want to take over and own? Or do I want to try to make a leap outside of of what my, my dad had built and, and go my own route. And, and really there was a lot of time where, you know, I'd be standing on the roof of a, of a waterfront home, you know, framing up the trusses and, and, and stuff and, and looking down at the dock captivated by the snooks swimming around and wishing I was out fishing and, and not standing on a roof. And, uh, so, you know, I kind of, um, like I think many people who started guiding, I decided that, you know, I wanted to do it so I could spend more time in the resource and in places that I really, really loved, you know, um, consumed your, your thoughts. When I was a kid, I grew up on a little Island, Sanibel Island, which you're very familiar with. And literally every waking minute was fishing or figuring out how we were going to fish or what we were going to catch or, anything like that. So it really was fishing was kind of part of me since as long as I can remember. Um, that kind of late 
late 90s, um, 99 was when I really decided that I was going to be a fishing guy and, um, you know, kind of took a leap of faith and, and that took a risk. And instead of taking over my father's company, I'm, I'm going to kind of strike out and do my own deal so that I could be around what I love more. And, and really as that transition um, was so that I could uh, share what I loved about Florida and my home with other people and, right. and really help make memories for them that, you know, had kind of stuck with me throughout the years. Right. Yeah. Um, so that started. And then as a, as a new guide, you know, you look at ways to, to increase your business and, and get people aware of, of who you are and do everything from, you know, going and speaking at seminars to at the time I, I started writing for a publication actually up out of Tampa onshore offshore magazine. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, so throughout that process, um, I was, I was fortunate to meet some of um, my heroes in the industry, uh, folks like Jose Wahebe and Foot Pallet and John Donnell and Sandy Moret, you know, guys who I really idolized as, as a kid and spent my Saturday and Sunday mornings watching them if I wasn't on the water. And uh, throughout that, just kind of, ha- you know, chance circumstances, I ended up meeting uh, Jose Wahebe, and um, he kind of took a, a mentorship role to me. And um, he, you know, at 19 years old, he, he filmed a TV show with me. And, nice. you know, I definitely, he had a lot better options, a lot more qualified people. But for me as a new guy, that was, it was huge, yeah. you know. And, um, and that kind of spurred to where, you know, he had me up for the fisherman's ball in Tampa. And then, you know, I would go down for different writing events with onshore offshore. And that's how I met him initially was in the Bahamas writing an article for the magazine. And so anyway, we developed a friendship and, and he kind of lent me the information of how he got to where he was, you know, um, and, and the idea of, of really being able to get the most out of being in, in the fishing and outdoor industry. And he told me the story about how he got his first loan for a boat uh, from Flip Pallet, who at the time was a banker. And, and uh, you know, Flip kind of took a chance and, and gave Jose a, a, a boat loan. And then he started guiding and, and like, like me at the time, um, was looking at how he could grow his guiding business and his name and relationships in the industry. And he started fishing bonefish tournaments and um, and that ultimately led to him uh, having the original Spanish fly fishing show, which was in Spanish, uh, before uh, Jerry McGinnis and ESPN took him under their wing there. And so he kind of laid out that path to me of here's how he did it. And there's no shortcut. There's no there's no substitution for paying your dues and and putting in your hard work and your time. Um, and so that's ultimately the path that, that I set out on, um, which was literally directly a, a play by play from one of my childhood heroes. So, um, actually hard, hard, little hard to talk about it still thinking about Jose, but, yeah, I get that. um, yep. you know, um, but, uh, but it was, is really to this day, you know, 20 plus years later, 
um, invaluable. And I think about that guidance, um, think about, you know, the, the, the knowledge that he shared with me still to this day, pretty sure. often. Really. So yeah. That's kind of, kind of how I became a guide. And then, as you know, that's, that's what led me into the path of, of fishing competitively was that next stepping stone. And, and whether that was, you know, redfish tournaments around the state or around the country, um, kind of took that next step, did that for 12 years, uh, fishing everything from IFA and FLWs to the ES, ESPN redfish tours. And, and then ultimately in uh, 2015, hosting and producing um, my own television show. So literally um, over the course of, you know, almost 20 years kind of followed in, in the footsteps of, of what Jose told me to do. And, and he was right, you know, it worked. And I think today the significance about that um, is that nowhere in that kind of plan did I ever anticipate being where I am today with captains for clean water and, and founding and running an organization trying to save what is, is most precious to us um, as fishermen. And so at the same time, I never had that. That was never part of the plan, but those relationships and, and kind of people I met and relationships with the company and the industry, um, you know, folks, companies like Yeti and Hell's Bay and, Deck and Costa, and, you know, all these amazing brands that, that now support captains for clean water. Um, you know, lo and behold, all that stuff actually had a larger purpose. And had it not been for, um, for my time, what I thought was cutting my teeth in the industry to, you know, to be, have a TV show and travel around the world and do cool stuff like Jose and flip um, actually was, was, building the, the blocks, the, the foundation for us having a strong base in the industry and being able to get our industry more engaged in water quality issues in Florida. Yeah, I think the good Lord puts us in places in our life because he has a big plan for us. And, and I think you're probably spot on because what, the things that you and Daniel have done um, – with captains for clean water have been remarkable. And, and you know um, how much I commend both of you for your efforts on, on what you do. I'm a big fan of captains for clean water. Um, but, and, and for those people that don't really understand um, captains for clean water, why don't you give them an overview of how the whole thing kind of started quick? Yeah. So throughout growing up in Southwest Florida, um, I kind of witnessed the decline in the health of our ecosystems here. Um, you know, places that that were pristine and amazing fishing spots when I was a kid had slowly degraded to where what was once a labyrinth of live thriving oyster bars and grass flats was now reduced to dead oyster shells and, and mud. And I had to start working harder and harder um, to be as successful as I was, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have like this great equipment or this vast knowledge, you know, I was going out with a Walmart combo and monofilament line and bass assassins and catching trophy snook. And then here I am as a guide with like the best rods and reels and braided lines and the latest and greatest lure and wasn't any more successful than than the kid running around in board shorts and a t-shirt, you know, and 
And um, so it was, it was kind of like something that throughout my life, I guess it was, we chalked it up to just the way of life and something I had to deal with and um, something that was much bigger than I had the ability to change. Right. And um, that kind of was the mindset. And that was the mindset of a lot of, of my friends. And, and as you know, you know, a lot of my guide buddies here was just, this sucks, but it's something we have to deal with. And uh, that was our mindset until, you know, 2015 going into 2016, when we had these, these discharges from Lake Okeechobee that we had, you know, become all too familiar with happening um, during our tourist season. And it was all of a sudden it was kind of like, man, this is getting worse and worse and worse. And if something doesn't happen, we could be in real trouble as far, not, not only just as fishing guides, but just our community. And, um, you know, restaurants were losing, were losing customers and hotels were losing bookings and fishing guides were, were losing trips. And so at that point in time, uh, Daniel Andrews, the, the other founder of the organization, he, he had a, a bit of a similar story as far as he took a leap of faith he had had a full ride scholarship to Gulf Coast University. And um, he actually decided after a year of college that that wasn't what he wanted to do. And he wanted to be out on the water sharing, you know, what he loved growing up with other people, much like I did f with my parents' construction company. So he, I'm sure to his uh, parents' uh, <laughs> displeasure, um, <laughs> walked away from the scholarship to become a, a fishing guide. Sure. And, um, <laughs> you know, and so when that was happening, he came to me, actually, he was, you know, in his low twenties, I think at the time he might've been 24, 25 years old. We knew each other in passing at the boat ramp, you know, and, uh, he came to me, I think as, as looking as like one of the elder gods and was like, man, I might've made a mistake. Like, what that we got to do we've he literally was like we have got to do something about this and we called uh first person we called was dr aaron adams at bonefish and tarpon trust and aaron had lived over here and studied tarpon um habit habitat and patterns and stuff over here for a long time and we we're like what can we do about this and and i remember um aaron's response was kind of daunting and was i don't know but if somebody doesn't do something soon there won't be much left. You guys better might as well look for new work. Right. And that's the last thing we wanted to hear because, you know, now at this point we had our dream jobs, you know, um, and, and we're being very successful <laughs> at this job. So that was kind of the, the, the catalyst that made it happen really the, the, that made us wake up and think we have to do something, even if we don't know that we can, really the catalyst that, that made us um, say, realize, I guess, that, that we can make a difference was the community and the public. And, and we realized that if two fishing guides who made their living off of the water and their lives revolved around the water weren't involved in trying to fix this situation, how could we possibly expect, expect other people to be involved and, you know, who, who were not so directly affected, even though everyone ultimately was affected in some way. Sure. And I remember we, we kind of, we started a Facebook page 
and we came, we just came up with the name captains for clean water. And, um, it just is what it sounds like. We are captains and we needed to fight for clean water. And, um, so the more we kind of dove into that, we, we started looking at, we, we realized that this was just one symptom of a broken system that, that we saw every day, but there was others around the state that were feeling the effects of water management and, and drainage manipulation, you know, that happened at the turn of the century. Um, folks in Kissimmee and Okeechobee who, who, you know, they were adversely affected in the way that our water was being managed and, you know, these unnatural highs and lows of Lake Okeechobee being held at really unnaturally high levels during the dry season and folks on Stewart um, suffering from discharges, much like, much, much like, uh, you know, those of us here in Southwest Florida. And then the guys in, in Florida Bay and the Keys where the year prior had 40,000 acres of seagrass die um, because of hypersaline conditions where the lack of fresh water flowing to the, the, the Florida Bay was, was causing it to become too salty and it caused massive seagrass off. So it was kind of like, yeah, as fishermen, you see, you see things as a system, not just, you know, this one pothole on a flat or this one pocket in a mangroves, but why those places are good or part of a larger picture. And, and I think that's what we, we really looked at with, with Everglades restoration was the water that was devastating our fishery on the East and West coast was the same water that was desperately needed in Florida Bay. And through Everglades restoration, we would never get back to where we were a hundred years ago, but we could, you know, we could return the balance back to these ecosystems around the Southern Peninsula. And um, we set out to, to try to figure out how to do that, how to get people like Daniel and I and yourself involved in that effort. And so uh, throughout college, Daniel had, had worked at Fast Pro Shops, and uh, we called the manager there and uh, said, hey, we want to try to get some of our fishing buddies together and talk about how we might be able to, to, to start moving in the right direction regarding, you know, our water management in Florida. And um, they were gracious enough to, to give us their conference room, and Daniel and I then put a thing out on Facebook and hoped that we'd get a dozen or so of our guide buddies to show up and maybe we'd all go up to Tallahassee and tell the, tell our representatives they had to fix it, you know? Right. And uh, <laughs> our surprise, we, we showed up at Bass Pro Shops that day and a dozen fishing guides showed up, but actually about 350 people from throughout the community showed up. Wow. Fishing guides, recreational fishermen, commercial fishermen, um, realtors, homeowners, retirees. And as you know, you know, that, that was kind of like a, a wow moment for us because it's not real often that you get, you know, recreational guys and fishing guides and commercial guys all to agree on something. <laughs> get them in the same room. You know? and not, yeah. Get them in the same room and not have them throw <laughs> hands. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And so, um, we realized that after talking to all these people and spending the next couple of weeks talking to everyone who would hear us from the tackle shops to restaurants to you name it, that there was a lot of people just like us who, who knew there was a problem, but felt like it was a David versus Goliath thing. It was just, there was no way that, that they could change it. And that's where we realized that 
maybe if if we could create a conduit to get people engaged and and mobilize them that that was the had been the missing link to seeing progress um and and if we could get not only those people in our communities engaged and vocal that we could get our industry and and we could get folks like yourself and flip and rob fordyce and all these guys um to kind of step up and say as an industry we have to change this industry thrives because of these ecosystems and it's our responsibility to fight for them and then we could we could really start to see some change and and we also could you know start to to lay out a game plan of, of how to get there right the reality yeah. is as you know, you know, it's, we're not going to get out of this overnight. We didn't, it didn't happen overnight. And so we had to have some longevity in a, in a game plan to, to see this through. Um, and that's where we kind of started building the pieces, you know, Start, started from there and with, without an intent of ever, you know, stopping being a fishing guide. Just, it was just kind of, we, as, as fishermen, whether you're a guide or whether you like to go on the weekends, we, we have a responsibility to, to try to leave leave these places intact in better condition than where they are today. Now, so so that's how it all comes together. Now, this has been how many years now since you since this has been rolling? We'll be four years old um, this month, actually. Very nice. Congratulations. Thank so thank you. So so now let's dive into how far we've come. And I say we, meaning you, uh, and the organization. Although, again, I, you know, you know, I'm a, a supporter and a believer and a preacher. It's on my radio show programs all the time. You know, those people that aren't members of Captains for Clean Water, I feel should be. You should be involved because I think you hit the nail right on the head. This affects everybody in Florida, uh, whether you're a realtor or a if you own or work at the gas station up the street or the, you know, the subway. Uh, sandwich shop or the Publix deli or whatever, because every, you know, fishing yep. is, fishing is the most, fishing is the number one participation sport in the country. And we live in the fishing capital of the world. So therefore, exactly. yeah, therefore it's kind of important to our economy, this whole fishing thing. It's kind of a big deal. So, so where are we now? Four years in, I know, I, I believe and again, I don't. I, my world is crazy. I don't pay as much attention to it as as I should. But I believe that our governor, Governor DeSantis, has helped us out greatly from all the things that I've read and all that. Where are we? Where are we today that we weren't four years ago, Chris? And 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 where do you see us here in the near future? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think there's no doubt that. Um, we're in a lot better place today than we were four years ago. Um, that being said, I mean, we're just at the very, very be- beginning of a fight that's been going on for 30 years. Um, unfortunately, we're still at the very beginning and have a, a very, very long way to go. But the reason I, I think I would say that we're in, in, in a much better place and what's so much more significant about where we are today than we were four years ago isn't um, isn't just you know the changes we've seen policy wise with uh, Governor DeSantis you know asking for the resignation of the entire board uh, at the South Florida Water Management District or 
um, asking and, and receiving record funding for water quality initiatives and Everglades restoration or, um, you know, the recent completion of, of bridging up the Tamiami Trail to get water, more water moving under US 41 into Everglades National Park, into the southern boundaries and ultimately to, to Florida Bay. But um, I think the real reason that, that we're optimistic and that we've seen progress is the amount of people and engagement that we see today from the public and from our industry compared to where we were four years ago. Four years ago, there was two fishing guides on a dock saying, how can we fix this? <laughs> and where do we even start? And today, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you go throughout Florida and arguably throughout the country that people aren't aware of the need to fix water quality issues in Florida and um, the need to, to really move Everglades restoration forward. Um, that's really where we're in so much of a better place. The, what we know is change needs to happen to save Florida's waters. And change happens when people are engaged. And what we saw was including ourselves and including our industry is four years ago, we weren't engaged. Right. It wasn't the general topic of conversation. It wasn't, you know, where, where people knew about the problems and were pushing for solutions. And today it's a lot different. Um, people are aware that, that through Everglades restoration, um, we won't just solve these regional um, symptoms, but we'll, we'll return balance to the, to the system as a whole. Um, they're aware that, that that advancement is only going to happen if all of us throughout our communities um, are engaged in driving our policymakers to, to make progress on this stuff. That if, you know, if, if we're not, if, if we're not putting heat on the ones who can move this stuff forward, we'll get left by the wayside. And, yeah. and that's what had happened for 20 years. You know, um, you know, you and I have talked about this before that the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan was voted into law in the year 2000. And at the time throughout that plan, there's, there's 68 individual projects that were intended to, you know, reconnect a, a, a fragmented system and, and return the flow of freshwater south to the Everglades and return balance back to the Everglades system, including, you know, Okeechobee and Southwest Florida and St. Lucie. And, and um, it was slated to be a 30-year time frame at the time. In 2000, when it was put into law, they estimated it would take 30 years to complete. And here we are 20 years in and haven't fully completed one of those 68 projects. And right. so way, way behind um, from a timeline standpoint. I think for when, I think when, I think when, and I don't mean to cut you off there, but I think when, yeah. I think when, when, when you first hit me with all that information, and again, it's about being aware. I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think it's, you gotta be, we need people to be aware um, and I think you guys have done a great job at that. But I think that's the one thing that just pushed me right over the edge where I just wanted to grab a hold of some of these politicians and choke them out was we voted for it. We voted this to happen. 
We, the taxpayers who pay for your existence, the reason you have a job is because we decided to give you a job. We, we told you this is what we wanted to do with the money we give you and nothing had been done. I mean, that's outrageous, Chris. That's unbelievable to me. And I I know you remember me getting all riled up on the radio when we talked about this the first time. (laughs) I was like, and I still, the other, I've brought it up many times since. I'm like, you know, we voted for this, right? Like we voted for these things to happen and nothing happened. That's criminal to me. It just blows my mind that, you know, all these things you know, that should have been done, that should have been going on year after year after year that, again, we voted for weren't happening. That's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, I remember that. And and I remember, I mean, you were <laughs> fires visibly me up. It pissed fire, off. It fires you know? me up, and, yeah, It gets and me And you going. know what? You should be. Yeah. Every single person should be pissed off. Yeah. Because um, the future of... of Florida, as we know it, is is what's at stake, right? Um, And so, you know, I think, and and it's it's funny because we left that meeting at Bass Pro Shop, and a week or so later, Daniel and I traveled to Tallahassee to let our policymakers know, you know, why this had to be fixed, and and we left Tallahassee pissed off. Um, (laughs) We felt there was a huge disconnect between. our representatives up there and what they viewed as, um, you know, importance or how they, how they measured or quantified the importance of things versus how, how we viewed it or measured it. And that was also when we kind of came away going, you know, this is where our communities, uh, whether you're fishing guides or, you know, servers or bartenders or restaurant owners or hotel owners or managers, this is where we play a role. And this is where our industry as fishing guides and boat manufacturers and cooler manufacturers or sunglasses manufacturers, that's where we play a role is that the language our policymakers understood is jobs and economy and revenue. And the language that we were saying is our ecosystems and everything that they support are dying and suffering. And if we could change that conversation from an ecological issue to an economic issue, and we could get our, our communities behind that message and give them an outlet to share how this was affecting them economically, that that is what would would drive change in Tallahassee and Washington, D.C. And that's really um, the significance of, of what's happened in, in, in getting people engaged. No longer was the hotel owner, you know, sitting on his hands, keeping quiet, hoping that the water cleaned up before his guests start arriving right. for their bookings. They were now taking the proactive approach and saying that, we have to fix this or else the future of my business is at stake. And once you start to put those numbers together, I mean, you hit it. We're the fishing capital of the world. Right. But you know, tourism, the tourism and, and, and fishing uh, and boating industry in Florida is $109 billion a year economic <laughs> driver for the state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. advancing this stuff isn't just about saving fish. It's, it's about literally saving 
our state's economy. And, and that's where we started to see um, real attention from our policymakers. That's why we started to see such such kind of bold um, positions, um, you know, from Governor DeSantis uh, throughout his his campaign. And, and um, that's really how we how we got to a place where the public was going to start holding our policymakers accountable. Yeah. Not just say they were going to do something, but to follow through with it. Sure. And um, and that's something that we're going to continue to do. It's something we have to continue to do is to, to, to hold our policymakers accountable because we've seen this before. And in the year 2000, when the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan was voted into law, there was celebrations to be had and champagne bottles to be popped. And yet here we are 20 years later and we're not where we should be. So um, although we're, we're optimistic, um, we, there is no doubt we're in a better place now than we were four years ago. Um, it's no time for celebrating. It's mm-hmm. a time um, for us to remain vigilant and to maintain our resolve and, and really to not get complacent, not let our foot off the gas until we save the Everglades, until we complete the Everglades restoration plan and, and uh, you know, until the, the future is, is written in stone that, that we're in a better place. And the reality of that is that's still a long ways off. And, um, you know, it's not Captains for Clean Water. It's not Daniel and I who's driving that progress. It's, it's the people. It's, it's the people who are driving that progress. And, and I believe that's... Without, go ahead. Yeah, without, without our communities speaking up and being vocal, we're just two pissed off fishing guys. Okay, but let's, let's and, and I'm going to wrap this up with you, but I, I, want you to, I want you to understand one thing. From me and my listeners and from all of the people whose lives you guys have changed, um, you gave, what you guys did was you, you gave us Instead of standing on the dock, just pissing and moan about it, which is one of my big pet peeves, we got lots of fishing guides here in the Tampa Bay area that love to stand around on the dock or stand around the parking lot next to their boats and bitch and complain about everything that's going on in the fishery. But none of them are members of CCA. None of them are members of Captains for Clean Water. Nobody's getting actually involved to make a difference. They just stand around, open a top on a cold beer, and bitch about things. What you and Daniel did was you gave us an avenue. You gave us a place to pinpoint, to go to, to, to raise our voices with you, our concerns. You guys took time out of your lives. You took time away from your businesses, from your families to go and lead this charge, Chris. Um, there's no way that I can thank you personally enough. Um, there's no way Real Animals Nation can personally thank you enough for your and Daniel's efforts in this endeavor. Uh, captainsforcleanwater.org. I, I say it on my radio programs all the time, and I'll continue to say it. I think you, if you're not a member of Captains for Clean Water, shame on you. You should be involved. You should be putting your money behind this effort because the effort that you and Daniel are giving us, the effort, the opportunity that Captains for Clean Water gave us, the voice that it gave us has started this wheel turning. And I agree with you. I I know that we have miles and miles and miles to go yet, but I think that we're miles ahead of where we would have been had you two just been like the rest of my dorky captain buddies who just stand around on the dock and bitch. 
So, you know, my hat's off to you, Chris. Um, always respected you as an angler. You know, we've always been cordial to one another in the past and Boca Grande and all those places at the Redfish Tournament Trails, all those things. But you guys have really done a great job. Um, uh, you really have. And, and there's no way we can show you guys enough love. Please keep up the good work. Again, Captain Chris Whitman, captainsforcleanwater.org is the website. You can go there, make your donations, become a member of Captains for Clean Water. You've heard me say it hundreds of times. It's a great organization doing things for the right reason, the right way. Um, you need to get involved. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Um, keep me in the loop, brother. If you ever want to come on the radio shows, you got something you want to bring up, talk about, whatever. You know I'm here for you, brother. You got my phone number. Let's stay in touch, all right? I appreciate that, Mike. I, I certainly will, and appreciate all your support. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave your listeners with one thing: is that um, you know there there there's no need to thank us. That the, the way that people um, can show their gratitude is, is simply to continue to be vocal, um, continue to be engaged, and don't get complacent when our waters clear up temporarily and and whatnot. And and just to to keep in mind this is that. This is something that is going to take years, if not decades, to fix. And in order to to maintain that vigilance, we're going to have to create a cultural change and a cultural awareness of the importance of water quality to Floridians and everybody who comes here to visit. And just like when, you know, we were kids, it wasn't the norm for everybody in every house to recycle. It was, you might have some people that did and some people that didn't, but today there was a cultural change that took years to happen. And today recycling is the norm. Right. And that's the same thing that, that we hope to achieve with Captains for Clean Water and the importance of water quality is to create a cultural awareness and cultural change that 20 years from now, the importance of water quality is just a normal part of your conversation and your way of life. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to, to be on the podcast and appreciate all of your support. And I, I look forward to, to seeing you here soon in the future and, and continuing the fight to, to save Florida. Great podcast with my good friend, Captain Chris Whitman, Captains for Clean Water. That's captainsforcleanwater.org. Uh, please become a member. Help this great organization out. You know, they do some really, really great things. Um, you know, that it's so important what they've started to do here in Southwest Florida. Um, and I think as this organization grows, they're going to help other areas out uh, as well. Um, it's, a, it's an organization that I'm a member of. And again, I highly recommend. You can kind of hear it in Chris's voice, the passion for what he does. Uh, just a great, great guy. Uh, him and Daniel Andrews doing some wonderful things for conservation here in our fishing in Florida. Real Animals Podcasts are available on Apple Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and ritampabay.com. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. We try to drop new episodes each and every Tuesday, so look for those. Remember, you can follow us uh, on Real Animals Facebook page at Facebook slash Real Animals. You can follow us on Instagram at Real Animals TV as well. And remember, each and everything that we do here at the Real Animals is presented by Contender Boats.
motorcyclists, I invite you to listen to Life in the Fast Lane, hosted by me, Alan Lane, a.k.a. Mr. Black Moses. On Life in the Fast Lane, I'll be talking with everyone about everything motorcycles. If it has two wheels, and in some cases three, it's fair game for us. Road racing, drag racing, stunt riding, custom bikes, gear, motorcycle clubs. Everyone from pro racers, brand ambassadors, industry insiders, and celebrities to the rider from right up the block. You'll hear them all right here on Life in the Fast Lane, hosted by me, Alan Lane, a.k.a. Mr. Black Moses. Life in the Fast Lane can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. 